1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Right, well, the more I read the Gospels, the more I realise Jesus wasn't a very good salesman. And the more I read the letters that the apostles wrote, the more I realise that these apostles, they weren't very good salesmen either. You see, if Jesus' main aim was to attract people to his cause, he hardly would have said, if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross to follow me. Um, in other words, what he's saying is if you want to be one of my disciples, you have to be prepared to be treated as a criminal and possibly even executed as a criminal simply because you're a disciple of Jesus. Um, actually, there was, a, there was a bloke this very week um, who walked through St. George carrying a cross. Did anybody see him? Put up your hand if you saw him. Right, a few of us saw him. And there was a cross about three metres long. He was cheating just a little bit because he had a set of wheels on the bottom of it. So he sort of had it over his shoulder and dragging it along on the set of wheels. But, but um, I had a bit, of a bit of a yarn to this bloke. And what his aim is, is just, you know, people might ask him, what, what are you doing that for? And he can just share the gospel with them and introduce people to Jesus. Now, that is not at all what Jesus meant when Jesus said that you have to be prepared to take up your cross to follow me. And I'm pretty sure this bloke knows that uh, because he has experienced what Jesus did mean. So I asked him, you know, how's things going for you? And he said, well, yeah, not too bad. I, I have copped a bit of criticism though here in St. George. Um, people had stopped and criticised him for what he's doing. And sadly, some of those people were churchgoers, uh, which I find really sad. And but that is what being willing to take up your cross to follow Jesus is about. He's willing to be criticised for the sake of Jesus. And if Peter's main aim was to attract people to the cause, I don't reckon he would have written this bit in the letter that he's just written, which has ended up in our Bibles. And maybe that's why many preachers don't preach on passages like this one. It's not a good sales pitch. And yet the biggest and the fastest growing churches in the Western world today, they like to focus on, on the passages that, that do sell. You know, they focus on things like a good life, eternal life, blessings, actually lots and lots of blessings 
Freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from pain, freedom from suffering, freedom from poverty, freedom from disease, healing, joy, good times, right? That's the sort of stuff that sells. Anybody, would anybody turn any of that stuff down? No, oh, you would turn it down, Margaret. No, no. <laughs> no, I don't think anybody, any of us would want to turn that stuff down. That's the sort of stuff that sells. You imagine if you heard two different versions of the gospel being preached. And one version of the gospel was, you know, come to Jesus and you can have all of these wonderful things and wonderful blessings and, and you know, provided you've got enough faith, then your life is going to be wonderful and carefree. Right? So imagine that's one gospel that gets preached, but then the, another gospel that gets preached is one which is more like the one that Jesus shared and more like the gospel that, that Peter preached about eternal life, but with that glory comes suffering. And in fact, the suffering comes first. The message that Christians will suffer, and it's actually the will of God for Christians to suffer. Because as we suffer for the sake of Jesus, we connect more fully with the sufferings of Christ and we will be blessed with Christ. Now, which sales pitch you think is going to get the most takers and the most converts and you know which one does and that's the way it is today. But the thing is if you respond to the gospel which isn't really the gospel am I am I really saved at all? Now because we work our way through whole books of the Bible and we don't leave anything out we don't just concentrate on the bits that make us feel really good about ourselves. Um, have you noticed, though, how often we seem to keep getting teaching on persecution and suffering and about how we need to remain strong in our faith in Jesus, even under persecution? Uh, it just keeps coming up. Have you noticed that? Over and over and over again. And sometimes as I'm preparing these messages, I'm thinking, OK, what new message are we going to bring out today? because it doesn't seem like that long ago that we were hearing it before. But what we need to understand is that suffering for the sake of Jesus is a normal part of the Christian life. It's normal for Christians to be persecuted and to suffer for Jesus. Never since the church first began has there ever been a time when there was no persecution anywhere in the world. Now, at times, and in certain localities, and in certain cultures, and certain countries, persecution has waned. And that's probably been the case for our culture, um, that in the past, persecutions weren't so great. But we need to realise that's an anomaly. That's not normal. And for Christians in Western society, we have been massively sheltered from persecution. Has anyone ever been threatened with a machine gun for coming to church? No, we don't have that sort of persecution. And, and we've been massively sheltered from persecution because our culture has been Christianized, right? Now, when I say that our culture has been Christianized, I wanna emphasize the word been, um, but I also want us to understand that doesn't mean that everybody in our culture was a Christian. And it certainly doesn't mean that, that the, even that the majority of people in our culture were Christians. What it means is that our laws 
very much reflected God's law. It means that our sense of morality was founded on biblical principles. And people like to be able to, back in the day, they wanted their kids to get these morals. Um, and it was generally thought of as being honourable to be a regular churchgoer, whether you believed in Jesus or not. But times are changing. Over the last half century, our society is being systematically de-Christianized. Now, I want to say here, that doesn't mean that there's any less Christians, right? Uh, there may be less people in a church on Sunday, but that's just because unbelievers who used to think that they should go to church don't feel they need to go to church anymore. And, and I actually believe that's a good thing. If, if you were in an army and 30% of the troops were loyal, and the other 70%, well, you'd go into battle and you didn't know whether they had your back or whether they'd stab you in the back. And I don't know about you, but I would rather be in a church of 10 loyal disciples of Jesus than to be in a church of 100 or 200 who didn't really believe. What would you rather? That's what I'd rather. And so I believe the Christian church is poised to become a much more effective agent in the world today because there's fewer unbelievers, people who, who aren't faithful to Jesus and don't really believe to muck us about. And as these times are changing for Christians in the West, we are coming back to how Christianity used to be. You see, why was Jesus crucified? It wasn't because he was on board with his culture, even though his culture was a religious culture. Christianity was once counter to culture, and it is again. And because once again, Christianity is different to our culture in which we live, it, and it once again stands in opposition to our culture, Christianity is becoming more and more despised. And Christians are more often being abused, more often being insulted and ridiculed and targeted and attacked. To just give you a demonstration of, of how things have changed, if I think back to my grandparents' day, a minister or a pastor, rightly or wrongly, we're automatically given a, a position of, of respect and honour in the community. Today, that's a rarity, a rarity. And, and, and in fact, pastors and ministers are more likely to be viewed with suspicion, more suspicion than anybody else. And by many people, their default position is to disrespect them and to see them as objects of ridicule. Leaders of churches will cop it the most in our society. And that's the way it's always been. If you, if you look at the ones who are martyred for the faith through, throughout history, it's always been the leaders of the churches who cop it the most, but they're not the only ones. There will also be other active Christians, active disciples of Jesus who will cop it. And what the scriptures have to say about persecution and remaining faithful to Jesus for us, it is becoming more and more, not only relevant, 
but it's becoming something which is essential for our development as effective disciples of Jesus. This is something that we need to have teaching on. And, and I want to sound a warning today. If there is ever a church that rarely gives teaching about persecution and about how to remain faithful to our Lord, it's probably a sign that that church has happily absorbed the worldly culture and is reflecting the worldly culture. And that, so they're not hated by the world, they're not offensive to the world, and so their members aren't being persecuted. Now, Peter, he was a disciple of Jesus. He was a Jew. He's the one who's writing this letter. And the Jews were used to being persecuted. They always have been. They still are. Anti-Semitism is what it's called today. But Peter's writing to a people who are different to that. He's actually writing to people who are Gentiles and their experience hasn't involved really persecution. And actually they're probably more used to being the ones who are doing the persecuting. And they probably would have thought, okay, they've never experienced persecution. And now they're thinking, okay, we've become Christians. We've become followers of God. We're now good with God. Things should go pretty well for us, don't you think? I mean, our Heavenly Father, He's the Lord God Almighty. He's our strength. He's our comfort. He's our protection. Things should be going good for me. But for these people, the tentacles of persecution were spreading out from Rome and was beginning to touch them. And so Peter says in verse 12, beloved. Now, when he calls them beloved, that doesn't just mean that he loves them. He's reminding them that they are the beloved of God. Later on, he reminds them that God is the creator, right? How special is that? To be the beloved, to be the special ones of his care and attention and love. Beloved. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What's this fiery trial? Well, throughout history, severe persecution nearly always involves Christians getting burned at the stake. A truly horrible thing. And I don't know if you remember or not, but right at the start of this letter, it's months ago now, um, and I was sharing a bit of a picture of what things were like in Rome. Peter was in Rome when he was writing this letter and how the Christians were being persecuted by the Emperor Nero and how he had a practice where he would have Christians coated in tar or pitch and he'd tie them to his trees in his garden and light them on fire as garden lighting. Right? This is the sort of society that they're living in. But I think Peter's telling us more than this, right? So they would have thought of these things and, got, and known very well what Peter was talking about. But I think Peter's telling us something more than this. It's a trial. It's a test. Right back in chapter 1, verse 7, he talked about how persecutions, these trials, test the genuineness of our faith. And he talked about how gold is tested by fire, right? So when you melt gold, all of the impurities burn off and you're just left with the pure gold. And maybe it's not quite as simple as that, but 
remember Peter, Peter was a fisherman, he wasn't a metallurgist, but, but you get the point. And what he's saying is don't think that this ought not to happen. It's normal. And so when you start experiencing persecutions for being a Christian, don't start saying to yourself, this can't be right. Hang on, aren't I supposed to be one of God's children? These suffering shouldn't be happening to me. Don't start thinking like that. Because suffering for Christ is normal. And rejoice because we're actually identifying with Christ in the sufferings that he went through. That's a big thing, isn't it? You know, some Christians, sorry, some people think, oh, you Christians, you're all wimps. Maybe we should introduce them to some Christians who have been persecuted for their faith and have stood the ultimate test. No way is, if you're called to be a Christian, no way are you called to be a wimp. From the time we set out following Jesus, we know that this is going to be a hard road. And yet we rejoice and we're glad in the midst of suffering because we know that's the way of our Lord. And if we are insulted and ridiculed for the name of Christ, we are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. Now, that's what Peter tells us. What does that mean, though? When you become a Christian, when you confess your sins and, and repent of sin and to give your heart completely over to God and say, Lord, I'm going to follow you from now on. We then ask him for the Holy Spirit. Right? You can't be a Christian. You can't live the Christian life without being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to fill us. Now that is, the Spirit of God himself comes inside of us and helps us to live as, as the people of God and to, to live how he wants us to live. And in the scriptures, we, we find that the presence of the Holy Spirit is God's stamp of approval, right? So back under the old Jewish thing, it was circumcision, right? If you're circumcised, you're... You're one of God's people. Um, and if you kept the Sabbath, you're one of God's people. Today, you know, people might think, oh, it's baptism, that's a sign. No, baptism isn't the sign that you're one of God's people. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And at times of trial and persecution, it's the Holy Spirit who keeps us strong. And Peter understood this very well. In the New Testament, it sort of seems like we almost get two different pictures of Peter. Who is this Peter who on the night that Jesus was betrayed found himself being questioned by a little servant girl who said, you're one of his followers. And he goes, no, no, not me. He's terrified of her. And it happened another two times. So three times that night, he said, I don't even know the man. What happened to Peter that he went from this bloke to somebody who, rather than deny Jesus, was crucified upside down and killed. Do you know what the difference was? The Holy Spirit. After Jesus ascended into heaven, um, 
all the disciples were gathered together in one place. We can read about it in Acts chapter 2. And the Holy Spirit was given to them and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spilled out onto the streets. And it was Peter, this one who had been cowering behind closed doors, now filled with the Holy Spirit. He started preaching the gospel and he, and he was sharing it openly to the same people who had crucified Jesus. And he said, you guys, you're in trouble. You've just crucified the Lord, the one who was raised from the dead. He had this kind of boldness. That's the difference that the Holy Spirit makes. And Peter would never be the same again. And he would never deny Jesus again. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious about what you will speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Right? So even if you get arrested, even if you get hauled up before the authorities and brought before a judge, you don't have to work out what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will help you at that time. Now, I've, I've actually experienced that. Um, I was in a meeting and hauled up before, let's call them the religious authorities, in a meeting and taken to task over something. And I didn't know how to answer it, but the words just appeared. And, and I just said a few words and it just shut them right down. Um, if you want to know more of the story, I'll tell you another time. Right? When we go through times of trial and persecution, we're not alone. And not only this, we are on the threshold of glory. When the very first Christian martyr was murdered for witnessing for Jesus, Stephen was his name, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed up into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And this is what he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then they smashed him with rocks until his skull was caved in and, and he died. That's what stoning is. Stephen was blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rested upon him. And he even saw it. And even in his death, he rejoiced. That seems strange. Why would we rejoice in persecution? I guess one reason is because we know, hey, we're heading straight for glory. We'll be with Jesus when this is done. But Peter gives us another reason. We share in Christ's sufferings. Being a disciple of Jesus is, is about following Jesus. That's what a disciple does. And we follow Jesus wherever he goes, even through suffering. If being a disciple of Jesus is about following Jesus, and if the cross is where we see Christ at his greatest, well, when we also suffer for Christ, this is where our footsteps are closest to his. But it's, it's not about suffering for suffering's sake. And it's not even about 
our suffering, paying for our sins, right? Jesus' suffering has already done that. It might seem like a bit of a strange thing to say to a church, but he actually says to these people he's writing to, um, look, there's, there's no benefit if you suffer for being a murderer. Imagine if I said that to you today. Now, now listen, you guys, uh, going to jail because you're a murderer, there, there's really no benefit in that. Was anybody planning on killing anyone today? No, no, okay. There's no benefit in that because if I kill someone, I deserve to be punished, right? And so therefore I get punished, that's justice. There's no benefit if I suffer for being a thief. If I steal stuff, I deserve to be punished. That's what justice is. Uh, he says, if you suffer for being an evildoer, uh, that, that's just a, a catch-all for all criminal offences, right? So if you do anything criminal, then there's no benefit for you in the suffering that you cop because of that. That's, that's just justice. And some of you are probably thinking, oh yeah, that doesn't count us. I, I don't steal stuff. I haven't killed anyone lately. Um, I'm not really a criminal. But then he steps away from criminality and says this. Basically, if you suffer for being a meddler or a busybody, there's no reward in that. Basically, what he's saying is if you stick your nose in other people's business and for that reason you cop a flogging, there's no reward in that. And I think what he's getting at is when we Christians preach a public morality, all right? If we Christians try to legislate and try to force our morality onto the godless and we suffer because of that, there's no reward in that. Right? In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, what business do I have judging those outside of the church? None. It's those inside the church that we're supposed to judge. God, God will take care of the ones outside of the church. And I think this is what Peter's getting at. As Christians, how we live will be very different to how the world lives. Because we've received the grace and the mercy of God, and because we've been filled with the Holy Spirit, we choose to honour God. We choose to obey God. And we choose to live by kingdom of God principles. But, but how could we ever expect somebody who's not saved and somebody who's not filled with the Holy Spirit to uphold the same kingdom of God principles that God expects of us? Jesus didn't come to judge the world. So why would we become the morality police of, of unbelievers in his absence? I have no business telling somebody of the world how they should live. Oh yes, I, I, our hearts ache. Our hearts grieve over the sin of the godless in the world. But we're not to be busybodies and try and force our morality onto the godless. Our job is to introduce them to Jesus and then God will, will transform them. Right, so if we suffer for criminal behaviour or if we suffer for meddling as busybodies and sticking our nose in where it doesn't belong, there's no reward in that. But he says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed 
And let him glorify God in that name. Pop quiz. How many times do you reckon we find the word Christian in the New Testament? Have a bit of a think. More than 100 or less than 100? What do you think? Show hands. More than 100? All right. Less than 100? Okay. Let's go down to 50. More, more than 50. Oh, yeah, if you said more than 100, you've got to keep your hand up there. Yeah. Less than 50. Yeah. How about 20? More than 20? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, Andre, that's it. Less than 20. Anybody willing to have a stab at an actual number? Big loud voice. Don't embarrass yourselves. Don't embarrass yourselves. Three. Three times in the whole Bible we find the word Christian. Uh, twice in the book of Acts and once here uh, in this very verse that we're seeing now. And the reason it doesn't come up very often is because it's not the term that the Christians used to describe themselves. They used to call themselves believers or disciples. That's why we're called bush disciples here. Um, we are followers of Jesus. We don't just have some kind of abstract belief. We're fair income followers of Jesus. And we are going to follow him because we believe. Um, the label Christian was actually a term that unbelievers used and it was a derogatory term. Oh, you Christians. Oh, you follow that, Christ, that, that, that criminal who was... Who, you, who was crucified and you believe is raised from the dead, you Christians. It was a word of ridicule. It was a, a word of contempt. But it's not anymore, not for us. Now, to us as disciples of Jesus, we are proud to be called Christians. Does anyone agree with that? Who's happy to be called a Christian today? Good, at least half of you. <laughs> Good. Um, and this here, in this letter, is the first record in the Bible of taking pride in what was intended to be a form of ridicule. Don't be ashamed to suffer as a Christian. Glorify God in not only being called a Christian, but suffering for being a Christian. And in some settings... And amongst some groups, even in our nation today, to have the identity of being a Christian has once again become a label of scorn, a label of ridicule. Um, in some countries, uh, particularly if you're in a Muslim country or a Hindu country or a Buddhist country, to be called a Christian means that they're probably going to visit your place that night with a with its clubs and take care of you. Don't ever be ashamed to be identified as being a Christian. Glory in that name. Anyway, it all comes down to justice. If we suffer for doing wrong, that's just. But if we suffer for being Christians, that's not just. And God will make it right with his own judgment. Verse 17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. 
Now, hang on a minute. When we become Christians, doesn't that save us from the judgment of God? And now Peter's telling us that judgment begins with the household of God. What's going on there? Well, let's not confuse judgment with sentence. Right? So judgment is about determining innocent or guilty. Or in this case, determining spiritually alive or spiritually dead. All right, if you remember back in verse 5, which we covered a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus would judge the living and the dead. And that's not so much about judging those who have died and those who are still alive. He's judging spiritually alive, spiritually dead. Okay, So those who believe in Jesus have become spiritually alive and they have this eternal life that will go on. And those who reject Jesus are the spiritually dead. And so persecution, suffering because we are Christians, is a test in which the judgment of God is determined. Are we fair dinkum followers of Jesus? Have we truly forsaken the world to embrace Christ? It's a testing of the metal, as it were. And so that's how judgment begins with the household of God. Peter, I think, is actually reflecting back to Ezekiel chapter 9. So back in the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel is given a picture of how the judgment of God is going to come upon Jerusalem. And of course, we know that Jerusalem was eventually completely demolished. People were pulled out and taken away as captives to another land, but a large number of them actually died. And the picture that he was given was of the judgment beginning at the temple, right? It begins at the house of God. It begins with those who should be closest to God. And in there in Ezekiel, he says, go through and mark everyone who sighs and groans over the evil and the abominations that's happening in the city. And these are the ones who are going to be saved. You see, that's what the judgment was. Being in the temple didn't automatically make you one of God's people. Just like coming to church doesn't automatically make you one of God's people. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of, has God, have I given my heart over to Jesus? And in Ezekiel, it was, is your heart in line with God's heart? When you see the evil and the abominations that's happening in Jerusalem, are you devastated by this? Do you grieve over this? Then that's a sign that your heart is like God's heart. And Peter's reflecting on Ezekiel 9. Judgment begins with the household of God. And this persecution that's happened right throughout history is a persecution that's happening today, is a test. Are we truly his? Or are we, are we just dipping our toes in the waters of Christianity and, yeah, I'll just have a bit of it. Or do we dive in? Are we fair dinkum? Are we even willing to suffer for Christ? And Peter says, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Right? The suffering of persecuted Christians is temporary. It comes to an end. As Peter puts it, we entrust our souls to the faithful creator. 
the, the one who made us will keep us. But things aren't going to go well for those who reject Jesus. He says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What's it mean to be scarcely saved? See, if faithful to Jesus, it, sorry, if faithfulness to Jesus under persecution is the test, who here is capable of passing that test? I, I won't ask you to put your hands up because that'll probably show a bit of pride. <laughs> but often, I have a serious discussion with somebody about, you know, when I'm having a discussion one-on-one -on -one about persecution, almost without exception, they'll say something like, I'd like to think that, that when it comes to it, that I would remain faithful to Jesus, but how will I know? Until I'm actually on the spot, how will I know? And I think that if we're honest, most of us have probably considered this. And for me personally, I love Jesus with, with my whole heart. But am I brave enough to withstand torture and never deny Jesus? Would I be willing to, to refuse to deny Jesus even if my family were lined up and their throats were cut one at a time? Would I, would I be able to remain faithful to Jesus? And in reality, I may not be brave enough. I may not be strong enough, but you know who is? God is. And where's God? God is Holy Spirit living inside of us. Remember we said that before. And this is why the righteous is scarcely saved. We cannot save ourselves, right? Even when it comes to the gospel itself, we, we can't save ourselves. I can't be saved by being a good person. I'm saved only by the blood of Jesus. Jesus died and he took my sins upon himself. It's only in him and only by his grace and his mercy that I'm saved. And just like this, it comes to, to this in the test as well. It's by the grace of God that he keeps us. It's by the mercy of God and by the strength of God that he keeps us, even in the time of trial. And so when we, our faith is put to the test, this is how we can know that we will be strong. And I don't want anyone here to leave today feeling, golly, if, if, my, if I was persecuted, if I was lined up, I don't know if I'd be strong enough. I want you to know, no, you won't be strong enough, but God inside of you will, and he will help you, and you will not fall. With the confession of Christ on our lips and the Holy Spirit in our heart, the Lord will give us strength. So don't be afraid that you're going to be too weak. We just have to have faith and love. Verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
Now, that short verse is going to really mess with some people's theology. Um, for some folk, that, that there's a false gospel that tells us, oh, it's never God's will for you to suffer. Rubbish. It's there in black and white. It's God's will for us to suffer. And so don't ever feel that any suffering that you're going through, and especially if you're suffering persecution, don't ever feel that God has abandoned you because that's part of the normal Christian life. And if we're not being persecuted, that's actually an anomaly. So what do we do? We entrust our souls to a faithful creator and we do good. God's got this. You know, there's lots of times in life when we've, we're at our wit's end and what am I gonna do? Take a big breath, folks. God's got this. And this is gonna be the ultimate test that any of us has, ever has to face. And God's got this. If the God can create the universe and everything in it, he can keep us. He's got this. It's not something we need to worry about. And all we have to know is that he has got this and do good. Um, in other words, there's a grand old hymn called Trust and Obey. And that's what, it's, that's what it means. Trust in God and obey him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we're just not too sure of ourselves. Will we stand the test and remain faithful to Jesus and never deny him? Even if we're being tortured, even if our families are threatened. But Lord, we choose this day who we will serve. And we know that it's not in our own strength that we will remain faithful. We depend entirely on you. Lord, give us strength. Give us courage. Give us love. Give us endurance. And give us hearts to do good. And Lord, we know that there are Christians who are this very day suffering horrendously for your sake. Lord, be near them. Keep them strong. Show them your glory and receive them into glory. In Jesus' name, amen.